You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. Now on our Social Jesus blog, we have been talking about the importance of listening to those who are on the, the margins of our society. For years I've been teaching uh, nonviolence. This week comes out of... Uh, listening to how various forms of nonviolence have impacted the lives of those who live on the margins of society. Welcome to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first-century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee might have to offer us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. This is episode 297, and our title is is a primer on self-affirming nonviolence part Four. Now, before we begin, I want to pause for a moment and ask for your support. Renewed Heart Ministries is a nonprofit organization working for a world of love and justice, and we need your support to bring the kind of resources and analysis that Renewed Heart Ministries provides. Intersections between faith and love and compassion and justice, they're needed right now more than ever. Help Christians be better humans. Please consider making a, a tax-deductible donation to Renewed Heart Ministries today. Do so uh, by going to our website at RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking Donate on the top right. Or if you prefer to make a donation by mail, our address is Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And to those of you out there who are already supporting this ministry, I want to say thank you. We could not continue being a voice for change without your support. So far in this series, we've discussed both nonviolence and resistance. This week, and, and over in our Social Jesus blog, we have been talking about the importance of listening to those who are on the the margins of our society and listening to their experiences and and what life is like uh, from their experiences. And this uh, week's uh, episode comes right out of that kind of exercise from listen after for years I've been teaching uh, nonviolence this week comes out of uh, listening to how various forms of nonviolence have impacted the lives of those who live on the margins of society so it, it's now time to address in this series we've discussed nonviolence we've discussed nonviolence as resistance now we're going to discuss the difference between nonviolence as self self-sacrificial and nonviolence as self-affirming. Now, historically, certain forms of nonviolence have tended to drift into victims passively enduring suffering to redeem their oppressors. And this is why we have to take a moment to clarify the differences between self-affirming nonviolence and, and the myth of nonviolent redemptive suffering. Other scholars' work will, will, will help us understand this difference too. Dr. Dr. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, uh, both of these, I, I want to begin with this week because they give us a good example to start with. In their, in their book, The Last Week, what the gospel really teaches about Jesus's final days in Jerusalem. And, and first, let me just say, there's a lot in this book that I like, but this part I do want to point out. This is, where they, this is on page 102. Notice above all how repeatedly Mark has Jesus insist that Peter, James, and John the Twelve, and all of his followers on the way from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem must pass 
with him through death to a resurrected life whose content and style was spelled out relentlessly against their refusals to accept it. For Mark, it is about participation with Jesus, not substitution by Jesus. Mark has his followers recognize enough of that challenge that they change the subject and avoid the issue every time. Now, Mark's Jesus does speak of the cross as participatory rather than as substitution. But at this point of the story, it was something Jesus invited his disciples to join him in. And we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean for other Jesus followers in their time and in their place? Jesus's teachings on nonviolence in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, they were forms of non, we've covered this, nonviolent resistance through which his fellow oppressed uh, community could stand up to the, the dehumanizing attempts of their oppressors. They were nonviolent forms of resistance, and I believe self-affirmation, but we're going to get into that. What we see in the Jesus story is Jesus's suffering on the cross, the cross itself, it can be interpreted as a passive lack of resistance. And if this proves to be a valid interpretation, then his instruction in the Sermon on the Mount to resist, that would be distinct from the lack of resistance we see at uh, the cross. His teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and interpreting Jesus's actions surrounding the cross event as being uh, passive, they've been conflated and it has produced harm. And that's what I want to us to look at this week. How many domestic violence survivors have had the cross of Jesus and his patient endurance of suffering held up to them as something they should emulate? They've been told to, to take up their cross and simply endure. And it's it's a dangerous situation where they are deemed Christ-like as they endure abuse for the redemption of their spouse. And they're told that this is what it means to follow Jesus's example. So, so how do we harmonize what Jesus taught and what he did on the cross. Let's back up and unpack what led up to Jesus's cross in the story. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cross is the direct backlash of the elite class in power uh, to Jesus's protest in the temple where he overturned the tables and he, he drove out the livestock Jesus was not patiently enduring suffering in his temple protest. He was resisting, he was protesting, he was shutting it down, and ultimately, the cross was the result of his resistance. A cross is, is not the first act of violence that the oppressors inflict on the oppressed that we simply have to take up and endure. The cross is a secondary act, and this is important. The cross is a secondary act of violence that oppressors impose on the oppressed for standing up to the primary violence. And consider the following chronologies. This is two different chronologies between the myth of redemptive suffering versus self-affirming nonviolence. Within the myth of redemptive suffering, the recommended chronology of events is number one, you have the initial oppression, and then number two, our bearing our cross is defined as a, a, a patient, passive endurance 
uh, for the redemption of the violent. Now, within an interpretation of Jesus' teachings as self-affirming nonviolence, the chronology of events would be, number one, there's that initial oppression again. Then number two, there's resistance, even though there may be a backlash. Then number three, the cross is defined as the violence that is threatened by those in power if one does continue to stand up. And then number four, the cross is the backlash that has to be risked then rather than avoided through through passive acceptance of the initial oppression. If one continues to stand, really the, to, 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 to take up the cross in that uh, chronology means to keep resisting even though there's a cross being threatened against you for doing so. Self-affirming nonviolence is quite different from redemptive suffering. Self-affirming nonviolence is the call to, to stand up to oppression. And remember, Barbara, Barbara Deming's statement about the two hands, I think we've covered this so far in this series. Uh, if not, here it is again. Uh, two hands, one is held up and one is outstretched. She wrote on in her book in 1971, Revolution and Equilibrium, this is page 224. With one hand, we say to the one who is angry or to an oppressor or to an unjust system, stop what you are doing. I refuse to honor the role you are choosing to play. I refuse to obey you. I refuse to cooperate with your demands. I refuse to build the walls and the bombs. I refuse to pay for the guns. With this hand, I will even interfere with the wrong you are doing. I want to disrupt the easy pattern of your life. But then the advocate of nonviolence raises the other hand. It is outstretched. Maybe with love and sympathy, maybe not, but always outstretched. And with this hand, we say, I won't let go of you or cast you out of the human race. I have faith that you can make a better choice than you're making now, and I will be there when you are ready. Like it or not, we are part of one another. So, so the cross... It was the violence that people in power used to threaten those considering standing up to their oppressors. Uh, taking up one's cross in self-affirming nonviolence is not patient, passive endurance of suffering, but it's the choice to resist and to stand up against oppression, even if one is threatened with the cross for doing so. Feminist and womanist scholars, they criticize theology that equates the cross with patient, passive endurance of, of uh, oppression and violence. And I want to share with some of those with you. This is from Christianity, Patriarchy, and Abuse. Um, this is in the introduction, page 11 of the introduction, not the book. It says, Christian theology has long imposed upon women a norm of imitative self-sacrifice based on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Powerlessness is equated with faithfulness. When the cross is also interpreted as the salvific word of an all-powerful paternal deity, women's well-being is as secure as that of a child cowering before an abusive father. This is on page 20 of the same book. The problem with this theology is that it asks people to suffer for the sake of helping evildoers see their evil ways. It puts concern for the evildoers ahead of concern for the victims of evil. It makes victims the servants of the evildoers' salvation. Page 127 of, of uh, uh, 
this is a, di- a different volume. This is Sisters in the Wilderness, The Challenge of Woman as God Talk by Dolores uh, S. Williams. Katie Cannon uh, writes the introduction for, for that book. But on page 127, Williams states, In this sense, Jesus represents the ultimate surrogate figure. He stands in the place of someone else, sinful humankind. Surrogacy attached to this kind of personage thus takes on an aura of the sacred. It is therefore fitting and proper for black women to ask whether the image of a surrogate god has salvific power for black women or whether the image supports and reinforces the exploitation that has accompanied their experience with surrogacy. So, so the, the reverends and doctors Joanne Carlson Brown and Rebecca Parker, they make an important distinction between the men of redemptive suffering and choosing life in spite of the suffering that may be threatened as a result. This is from uh, the same book uh, 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 that we first mentioned, Christianity, Patriarchy, and Abuse, A Feminist Critique. This is page 18. They write, It is not the acceptance of suffering that gives life. It is, its com- it is the commitment to life that gives life. The question, moreover, is not am I willing to suffer, but do I desire to fully live? The distinction is subtle and to some spe- specious, but in the the end, it makes a great difference in how people interpret and respond to suffering. Yes, there is a subtle, uh, there are subtle distinctions between defining taking up one's cross as passively enduring oppression and defining it as being willing to to stand up and resist even if uh, there are those who threaten us with a cross. But how we define Jesus's call to take up our cross that makes all the difference in how we respond to oppression, how we respond to violence, how we respond to injustice. Does taking up the cross mean remaining passive? Or does it mean not letting our oppressors threaten us into remaining passive? And lastly, the cross, it's not universally intrinsic to following Jesus, as some would have us believe. And this I really want you to see this week. It only comes into the picture if one's oppressors use it as a threat to try to force us to remain passive. The cross is only a present if oppressors make it present. And only if the oppressed choose to resist and stand up in spite of being threatened. If those in power um, do threaten you with a cross for following Jesus and standing up to oppression uh, 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 is responded to with the threat of a cross, then yes, following Jesus involves a cross for you. But the cross is secondary. It's not universal. It's not primary or intrinsic to following Jesus uh, for everyone. Jesus calls us to life, to abundant life. Jesus is not calling us uh, to death. And this leads us to discern what, what, what the teachings of a first century Jewish prophet of the poor may offer us today in our contemporary work of survival and resistance and, and liberation and reparation and, and transformation. It's not the cross that transforms society. Following the teachings of Jesus and standing up to injustice, those are the things that transform society. So it's, it's not the cross of Jesus that saves us societally. 
But following Jesus saves us societally by, by, by uh, placing us on a different path with different intrinsic results. It's as, as Brown and Parker uh, state, it's not the acceptance of suffering that brings life, but the determination to choose life that brings life. Jesus didn't die so that the elite and the status quo could, could go to heaven at death. Jesus died because he stood up to the status quo in solidarity with the oppressed in spite of being threatened with death for doing so. In this series on nonviolence, uh, we have to heed the caution. And also, I think that everyone who teaches nonviolence has to heed this caution. It's the caution that Reverend Dr. Uh, Katie Cannon she gives us in that introduction to uh, Dolores Williams' book, Sisters in the Wilderness, uh, and uh, it, it, it's, it's the caution that nonviolence, it shouldn't be interpreted as passivity, uh, as redemptive suffering, or societal disengagement. Um, these are, are uh, Cannon's words. Dr. Williams contends that theologians need to think seriously about real-life consequences of redemptive suffering. God talk that equates acceptance of pain, misery, and abuse as the way for a true believer to live as authentic Christian disciples, those who spew such false teaching and warped preaching must cease and desist. Now, Williams goes on. In her book, she quotes the scholars that we've referenced this week. She quotes the feminist scholars, but then she goes on to critique uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. too, allowing his uh, who, who he allowed his own nonviolence to, to drift into uh, forms of, of redemptive suffering. And this is, uh, uh, again, Dolores Williams talking about feminist critique of, of Dr. King. Their critique of Martin Luther King Jr idea of the value of suffering, uh, the suffering of the oppressed in oppressed-oppressor confrontation accords with my assumption that African-American Christian women can, through their religion and its leaders, be led passively to accept their own oppression and suffering. If women are taught that suffering is redemptive, Brown and Parker quote Martin Luther King Jr.'s words about suffering, which he saw as a most creative and powerful social force. The nonviolent say that suffering becomes a powerful social force when you willingly accept that violence on yourself. So that self-suffering stands at the center of the nonviolent movement and the individuals involved are able to suffer in a creative manner, feeling that unearned suffering is redemptive and that suffering may serve to transform the social situation. Brown and Parker's critique of this theology is that it asks people to suffer for the sake of helping evildoers see their ways, and it puts concerns for the evildoers ahead of concern for the victim of the evil. It makes victims the servants of evildoers' salvation. And again, that's uh, Sisters in the Wilderness, page 161. But one of King's most famous sermons, it drifts into... This myth of, of redemptive suffering or nonviolence, these, these women scholars and, and feminist scholars, they're correct. Uh, King allowed nonviolence at times to drift into being defined as, as self-sacrifice of the oppressed rather than self-affirmation. And this is from, again, his, one of his most famous sermons um, uh, on enemy love. It's taken from A Gift of Love, Sermons from Strength to Love and Other Preachings, page 54. I've seen too much hate to want to hate. 
myself, and every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. So far, everything looks great here. There's no critique to any of this. Somehow, we must stand up against our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. To do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. So throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes, threaten our children, and as difficult as it is... We will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road. Leave us half dead as you beat us, and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country. Make it appear that we are not fit, culturally and otherwise, for integration, but we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. There's a subtle difference between this passage, this sermon, and the passage that we read previously from Barbara Deming about the two hands. Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount did not call his followers to passively respond to suffering, but to stand up to injustices in nonviolent forms of resistance. Both feminist and womanist authors warn us of defining Jesus's cross when it's interpreted as passive acceptance rather than his teachings on resistance as the centerpiece of our nonviolence. And again, the cross did not demonstrate Jesus's nonviolence. It was the, the backlash for Jesus's previous nonviolent resistance in the temple. And consider once again Dolores Williams' words, just one more time. This is from page 130 to 131. It seems more intelligent and more scriptural to understand that redemption had to do with God through Jesus giving humankind new vision to see the resources for positive, abundant, relational life. Redemption had to do with God through the ministerial vision giving humankind the ethical thought and practice upon which which to build positive, productive quality of life. Hence, the kingdom of God theme and the ministerial vision of Jesus does not point to death. It is not something one has to die to reach. Rather, the kingdom of God is a metaphor of hope that gives those attempting to right the relations between self and self, between self and others, and between self and God as prescribed in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Golden Rule, and in the commandment to show love above all else. Now, as we close... I want to revisit uh, Elizabeth Bettenhausen's account on a conversation with a group of seminarians. Um, it gives us a lot to ponder about whether uh, Jesus' nonviolence was rooted in self-affirmation of the oppressed found in the instruction in the Sermon on the Mount, or whether it should be defined as the oppressed self-sacrifice or, or their cross. This is, uh, uh, again, from Christianity, Patriarchy, and Abuse, the introduction page uh, 11 and 12 of the introduction. Several years ago, 
I asked a group of seminarians to choose New Testament stories about Jesus and rewrite them imagining that Jesus had been female. The following recreation of the passion story of Luke 22, 54-65 was one woman's knowing by heart. This is Candace Joyce, the student that wrote that. They arrested the Christ woman and led her away to the council for questioning. Some of her followers straggled along to find out what was to become of her. There were several men and two men followers. These men followers were there mainly to keep watch over their sisters. Someone from among the crowd asked the question of a man following, Have you seen, haven't I seen you with this woman? Who is she and what is your relationship with her? He replied defensively, She's a prostitute. She's had many men. I've seen her with many. The men who were guarding the Christ woman slapped her around, made fun of her. They told her to use magic powers to stop them. They blindfolded her, and each of them in turn raped her and afterward jeered. Now, prophetess, who is in you? Which one of us? Tell us. They continued to insult her. After this story was read aloud, a a silence surrounded the class and made us shiver. Ever since, I have wondered, would women ever imagine forming a religion around the rape of a woman? Would we ever conjure gang rape as a salvific event for other women? What sort of God would such an event reveal? Again, The cross was the result of Jesus' refusal to let go of his hold on life and the lives of those that he stood in solidarity with in the face of oppression, in the face of violence, and in the face of injustice, the injustice of his day. The cross, we have to remember, it proves Jesus was not content to remain passive and politically disengaged. We, we have seen in this series over and over that Jesus' teachings on nonviolent resistance was a means of marginalized groups affirming their selves, affirming their humanity, and affirming the value of their lives. It was more than resistance. It was more than just nonviolent. It was nonviolent resistance that at its heart was an act of self-affirmation. Heart group application this week, what difference does it make for you personally to see nonviolence as as self-affirming rather than self-sacrificial? What difference do you see uh, that this could make for society uh, to see nonviolence as self-affirming rather than self-sacrificial? And then number three, how does this difference impact how you define what it means to follow Jesus, both within your own faith tradition and in our larger society today? Uh, Discuss each one of these with your group. Thanks for checking in with us this week. Wherever you are, keep uh, choosing love. Choose compassion. Take action. uh, Choose reparative and distributive justice. Um, This week gives us a lot to think about. Remember, another world is possible if we choose it. And don't forget, we need your support here at RHM to continue making a difference. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. (music) 